Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Hi, I'm Astrid, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, there's a couple of people I want to thank. I want to thank Cheryl. Where'd you go, Cheryl? For asking me to speak, and I want to thank Bob Kay and his sponsor, Frank, for handing out CDs of mine and driving me and supporting me. And um, Serenity in Yosemite has been incredibly generous. It's like such an honor to be here. What a beautiful setting to share a message. And my friend Lynn, who came up here with me, supportive and such a you know strong, strong member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, and I want to thank God, and I want to thank the Twelve Steps, and I want to thank everybody that has sponsored me along the way because it's been one hell of a journey, and I have needed a lot of help, a lot. I am a real alcoholic. I am a bottle hiding, pee in your pants. Burn holes in the couch, break out in handcuffs, vomit on your party dress. Real alcoholic. <laughs> and, um, yeah. And that's a really important factor for me, and my sponsor has showed me that I really want to be sure that I qualify, that I have, <laughs> that I have this physical allergy, because that's a huge important factor in Alcoholics Anonymous, and sometimes that's overlooked. And if we look in the doctor's opinion, we'll see the hard drinker and the periodic and all of these different types, but there's something that commonly binds us together and sort of separates us from the other ones, and that is that I have an absolute physical allergy. Like, I drink and I want another drink, and then I wake up in the morning in in pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization, and I still do it all over again, and there's no amount of self-will that can stop that runaway train, and I know how to run the whole entire train until the wheels fall off and then I'm still going to take the locomotive and try to steer it in some psychotic direction. So, I, um, yeah, hopefully I can present something that has a message of depth and weight and, and my experience. I have been sober. I'm a retread. This is my second time around and I was sober for 10 years and I was so dry I could have spontaneously combusted. I was not going, I was not going to meetings. I did not do the steps as outlined in the big book. I didn't maintain a sponsor relationship. I didn't have commitments. I didn't go to AA. I put the plug in the jug and I treated the physical allergy and I didn't do the other 11 and a half steps. And so if you be a real alcoholic like I am, Somewhere down the line, it's going to be you and your psychotic disease that's running amok in your mind, and the bottle's going to win, because that's just the way it is if you're a real alcoholic. Self-will can't treat this disease. And you can remain sick, you know, and, and dry for years, and everybody in here knows somebody that's sucked on the barrel of a gun and blown their head off in recovery sober with many years. This is a common thing in Alcoholics Anonymous. I want to be sure that we all get something real clear about the statistics in AA. 
Only 2% of alcoholics ever get a five-year cake. This isn't an effing joke. This is so serious, this disease, and it's killing even more people than before. In some ways, Alcoholics Anonymous is having less success. And why is that? What is not being presented? What's not being laid out? What's not being heard here? What are we not doing? How come we're not rolling up our sleeves? And, you know, you come into AA, and I am not putting down Alcoholics Anonymous, but I feel like the rooms have kind of run a mock, you walk into AA and you just hear the drama du jour and all these problems. My bunkie stole my psych meds, my, my sponsor's screwing my old lady, all this stuff. And, and you walk out thinking, I don't want to come back to AA. And that's not what Alcoholics Anonymous is all about, you know. And so that first 10 years when I was dry, you know, in some ways I'm really grateful that a new bottom came because I finally got to hear the message and my life got to be saved and I didn't have to wind up living dry, dry, dry. And what happened for me was a lot of alcoholics actually can be very successful. We have a lot of workaholism. Often we're high achievers and uh, crazy and screaming and restless and irritable and discontent, but we can, we can get it done to some degree. And I went out and I got a career and I had a child and I put her in a private school and I bought a house and I had two cars and I'm just juggling and juggling all this stuff. And, and in untreated alcoholism, the noises that an untreated dry alcoholic makes are noises like, Oh my God. Oh, oh God. <laughs> and that's the kind of noises that come out on a continuous, oh geez. And that's pretty much how I lived. And I'd wake up in the morning and that psychotic diseased mind would be sitting at the foot of my bed saying, excuse me, I have something to talk to you about, about your effed up life and your effed up mind and your effed up everything. And within 30 seconds, me and the disease would be off and running and I'd be in hell and I live in beautiful Southern California and I had a job and there was money in the bank and I hated my life and I hated you and I wanted to die and I did not know what was wrong with me. You know, and I'd go to psychiatrists thinking maybe it's some mental thing, maybe I need some psych meds and I'd go to anger management thinking I'm just too pissed off over here and I, just if I can juggle all these balls maybe I can get one moment of peace and serenity and I didn't know that it really is a spiritual malady and and if 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 we if we treat the spiritual malady we'll straighten out mentally and physically you know the book either is the truth or it's not and um and the, the solution really is in the print and then in the application of the print and anything else for me is just more blah 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 you know people have a lot of ideas and they come in with their stories and their drama and it's not Alcoholics Anonymous and I, I really like to keep the focus on what AA is all about, what the 12 steps are all about, what the solution is all about but I do believe that if the problem's not clearly presented you might miss the boat so I uh Got in a relationship with this guy. He was an acupuncturist, and we started fighting. And then if you start fighting in dry sobriety, it very quickly goes from any kind of civil arguing to, like, street words, F and B, F and C, you know, just, like, in two seconds flat. The, the words are coming out, and people are throwing coffee cups and knives and things across. Doors are slamming. Neighbors are calling the police because that's how we roll. You know, that's just, that's just, that's who we are in untreated alcoholism. So 
it was going from bad to worse, and we were breaking up and getting back together, and if he would just listen to me, and if he would just behave, because he's so messed up, if he would just do the right thing, we'd be cool. And, you know, the disease is designed not to see itself. You see, self is never going to reveal self to self. The disease is never going to tell me, Astrid, you're the problem. It's never going to say that. I'm going to search for every kind of outside band-aid. Let's do a geographical. Let's get a new guy. Let's get a new house. Let's buy some new boots. Let's buy some new boobs. Let's buy something new. You know, let's get some new stuff and bring it on in, and we're going to feel safe. The disease will tell me that, and it'll send me on this ridiculous scavenger hunt, and off I'll go, getting that thing, borrowing money to retrieve it and clutch it and bring it into my arms, and then I look and I say, why do I still feel so crappy? And then the disease will say, because it's really over there. And then off I go again. And I can be on this scavenger hunt for years and years and years and years and years because nobody ever told me that deep down inside of every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God, and that's where I'm going to find the real solution, and that's the place where I'm going to treat my disease. So things start to go from bad to worse, and I get so upset with this guy that I decide after 10 years of dry sobriety that I need a drink. I need something to cut the edge because I can't handle, handle the anger and the hostility and the restlessness, irritable and discontentedness. And that first drink I will not forget, and I won't even forget where I was sitting, and I won't forget what I was drinking. I went and I bought a bottle of champagne, and I popped it open, and I poured it into a champagne glass, and I, I took a big swig, and I just remember that feeling like where the back of your neck sort of tightens and things tingle down your spine and I just felt like that weepy, joyful, weird, twisted feeling of like, oh my God, I'm half numb and I'm okay. And, 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 you know, like the, the clouds parted and the angels trumpeted and God began to sing at that moment because my disease was treated for the first time in 10 years. And it was like, hallelujah. But I also just flushed a gigantic 10 billion ton toilet of diarrhea, and it was all headed towards my life and my nine-year-old child, and I was just about to drag a little girl by her hair through the wake of untreated alcoholism and a nightmare life. I was about to blow my life down to a ground, ground level of just, uh, you know, glorious alcoholic freaking beauty that we've all seen in the halls of AA. So I would say like the first five Five or six months, I was kind of able to maintain the drinking a little bit and chewing gum and lying and putting it in Taco Bell cups and concealing it behind things. And I was still able to go to work because... Because my, my security instinct and my, my prestige and my desire to be someone in society, that instinct was still turbocharged and running way too high. So I could get up with a hangover and I could still have enough gasoline to be like, man, gotta, gotta just button down the hatches, gotta hold on, you know, we'll ride this storm out, we're gonna get sober somewhere down the line, I don't know where or when, but I'm gonna clean this up, I'm gonna clean it up later. And the disease will always tell you that because the thing is a living entity and it needs to stay alive. You see, the disease needs a host. It needs a host, and then it latches on, and then it uses my voice, and it speaks to me with great authority, and it makes me think that I am the disease of alcoholism. Very, very sneaky, and it wears hats and faces. It has a whole wardrobe down in the basement of all kinds of sneaky ways to deceive me and to fool me. And self is a real, real authoritative, horrible power for any alcoholic, especially this one. So as time went on, six months, nine months, on. 
start drinking in the afternoon and the evening, then morning, afternoon, and evening. And, you know, I remember my daughter just starting to unravel. Just She could just see it. And I'm late all the time to pick her up from work, and I'm at the bar in the afternoon, and, you know, she's sitting at school. She's the last one there. I mean, I'm starting to really not abuse but neglect um, uh Just disassociate myself, you know. The drinking took precedent because obsession for the drink is stronger than self-will. Obsession for the drink is stronger than a maternal instinct. So to take care of my child, I knew I was doing something wrong. But the disease is ten million times stronger than that, and there's no way out. And then the guilt and the shame and all that remorse and the horror and I gotta stop this, you know. That self-talking comes in, but I can't. If you be a real alcoholic, it's not a joke. It's really, really, really tragic and sad and painful what I put my kid through. It's so, so sad. It's just not right. And we see it in AA all the time. And you can see how the mommy of that child can't see the damage that she's doing. Because just the disease is designed not to see itself. You know, you know, Bill Wilson would say we're delusional. We call it denial now. Or we're maladjusted from life. We're full flight from reality. We're in I can't see. My glasses are broken. My perspective is warped. My mind and my vision is blurred. So as things go from bad to worse, I... um I, I get rid of the boyfriend that I'm fighting with all the time, and I start to go into that real isolated alcoholism where everything's a secret and don't come too close, you know, and I'm always chewing gum, and my eye contact gets real sketchy, and I start avoiding you, and my body language starts to get, like, a little bit harder and tougher, and a couple more cuss words come out, because I need to conceal the monster inside, so don't get too close to me. And, you know, anyone can see untreated alcoholism. We can see it. We see it. Hey, hey, yo, Johnny, what the F is up? And it's like, whoa, I need a program, you know? <laughs> and, and, I, and I start to run and operate from that place. I start to look like that guy or that girl in AA, the real noisy, loud, obnoxious, demonstrative, untreated, everything just rolling out of my mouth all the time, incessant talking. Any thought that comes in gets regurgitated out. It's a, it's a, it's a scary disease. It's a really, the, the, the parasite has found the host and it's really running the show now. So, these people from my daughter's school, she was in a private school, they come up to me, they, they actually approach me one day. They pull me aside. This is so ballsy of these people. I have to commend them for this. And they say, you know what? We're just going to level with you. You look terrible. We can tell you're either on drugs or alcohol or something. Your daughter is not doing well in school. She's so weepy. When she comes over our house, she's just disconnected. She's agitated. We want to take your child. Why don't you go get some help? We're here to support you. We'd love to help you. you got to do something. You can't keep going like this, and it's so unfair to your kid. So I went home, and I packed up all my daughter's stuff, and I gave her away like two days later. I gave my 10-year-old away, and I did not see that child's face for three years. I gave her away to those people. Now, what happens next is that last little bit of warped instinct to try to hold on to everything, like there was some kind of psychotic manager inside that said, you got to take care of the baby, you got to take care of the baby. Now that the baby's gone, the disease can just really, it doesn't have to wake up in the morning, it doesn't have to make a peanut butter sandwich, it doesn't have to light a little candle and say a bedtime story, it doesn't have to make a frozen pizza, it doesn't have to do anything. So... 
great, you know. Here we go from bad to worse. Then it turns into morning, noon, and night drinking, and I'm not able to pay the mortgage, and I start dating this really disgusting, you know, alcoholic, drug addict. Drugs are a part of my story, but my main course is alcohol. That is the steak, and there are potatoes and salad and stuff on the side. But I'm the real deal. The booze is always there. The vodka flask is always there first, and then maybe smoke or snort or slam or pill or just, you know, get, just get me unconscious as quickly as possible. But I really have the physical allergy of the alcohol, and that's what's important to me to identify an alcoholic Anonymous. Super important to me. Like, my sponsor's hammering that home, how important that is to me. You know, he's made a point of telling me that um, and you know, and, and I don't know that I'm making this a truth for myself, but it's so interesting because I've got this guy that's so wholeheartedly into the big book and he says, it's so important that one real alcoholic work with another real alcoholic. That a physical allergy person work with another physical allergy person because we can best serve one another and help one another. And I'm like, I never heard it like that. I'm so grateful that I do hang out with the big dogs. You know, and I don't always agree with them and I learned something in AA. Go hang out with the people in the program that intimidate you. Go for it. Go to higher consciousness. Go for the bigger stuff. Don't run. Don't hide. Introduce yourself. You know, get some phone numbers. Get some help. There's a lot to be offered here so freely. Don't be afraid to ask. You know, and, and, and I'm so grateful because I still need so much help. So I pack up my house, I give my child away, and I move in with this guy, and we start really fighting crazy, 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 and it's just one fight after another. And I decide to go in, I do an outpatient Tarzana treatment, that doesn't work. I do an inpatient Tarzana treatment, that doesn't work. I go to Acton, it doesn't work. I go to American Hospital, that doesn't work. You know, it is very expensive to get the average alcoholic sober. It is people have to spend a lot of money on us or we spend a lot of money on ourselves. It's tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of dollars to fix this disease. It is not a joke. It it can drain the wallet and the pocket and the money out of anyone and everyone. So after I'd exa exhausted every avenue and I could see that Nothing was happening for me. I wasn't hearing a message of depth and weight. I wasn't getting a God consciousness. I wasn't getting the steps in my life. I was still running on self-will. My muscle was still up. And I, down deep down inside me, I don't think I wanted it. I don't think I wanted AA. I think I still had one eyebrow up, and I thought, these people are hokey, you know. I don't like what they wear. They don't speak English right. Some of them don't have any teeth. They need a dentist, you know. I mean, just every kind of judgment to move my myself out of there. I'm not going to merge with these people. The place where I belong, the people with the physical allergy and the mental obsession, exactly like me to a T. Oh, no. And my ego and the disease will continuously separate me all the way out the door. And like I said, with a gun in my mouth or an overdose in the back of an alley or God knows what. And we see it all the time, all the time. Because remember, only 2% ever get a five-year cake. So I leave this guy in his garage, and I move out into the street at the end of 2000, and I start a life of drinking and prostitution on Sepulveda Boulevard in the San Fernando Valley. And I don't, when I say prostitution, I'm not saying like, dancing on some pole with fishnets or anything like that. I'm saying in the street, like those dirty, matted, crazy women with a paper bag that sleep behind the freeway that hang out with the cart pushers and the panhandlers and the crack dealers that ride stingrays and put the dope down in here. Those people, the people that rip everybody off and have bags of somebody's grandma's jewelry and overdoses in a back alley and we leave the bodies and VCRs under our arms and crazy psycho people all over the place in sketchy situations like there, that deep, dark, 
dark underworld of the real streets out in the elements. I did not want to be in a house. I did not want to be in a motel. I did not want to be inside. I lived outside. And, you know, it's interesting because God has restored me to enough soundness of mind that I can really look back and I have a a good recall of the chain of events. But there was a, a long period where the wet brain and the psychosis was getting worse and worse and worse, and I was getting more and more disconnected, you know. And, and I can remember just like in the beginning, you know, turning tricks and selling my body in the street and having enough moral fiber to just say, oh, my God, I'm so disgusted, I can't believe I'm doing this. And in the end, just not caring, like just being numbed out. You know, I think sometimes people get like some weird warped idea of a prostitution, like she's running around having orgasms or something like that. It is so far from from that. It is like, I hate you. Give me your money, you piece of ass, and you better get this over with soon. And I hate myself too. I mean, it's just like a mechanical, this is what you do to stay alive and support yourself. And everything becomes this animal dog eat dog situation out there. I don't run from any kind of intellect. It's all instinct and it's slightly warped instinct. It's very primal as you cruise through the streets. It's sort of like eye contact, body language, who's cussing the most, who's the hardest, you want a piece of me, that kind of stuff. That's how we roll out there, you know, and probably the biggest and the loudest. I mean, I'm six feet tall, so I'm the one that nobody ever tries to really kidnap and get into a car because it's like folding up a giraffe into the back of a van. So, so lucky for me, lucky for me, I wasn't the one getting brutalized and I might even come up to some little, you know, Hispanic guy that thinks he's all that and just start doing one of these, you know. And you know, it's funny now, but man, oh man, it's amazing where drugs and alcohol will take you. And, you know, it knows no boundaries, educated, not educated, black, white, green, red, yellow, gay, whatever, tall, short, hairy, bald. It just doesn't, you know, that that parasite just looks for a host. It just, you know, and it gets one. And when you get the physical allergy, it's on and cracking, and there's no way to stop it. There's no way to control it. And it's controlling you and taking you into the deep depths of hell. And I think that I somehow have it going on and I'm in control of it, you know, even down in there. Something in my mind tells me, we're going to clean this up one day, we're going we're gonna to get through this, it's not all that bad, and they'll continue to tell me that all the way down into a coffin because that's just the way it is. So, you know, as the months go on, it turns into years, and I can remember, like, as, as wet brain would start to really take over. Um, I didn't even want to talk to the street people anymore. I didn't want to have a conversation with anyone. And I can remember sort of like not uttering lots of stuff anymore. Like my capacity to articulate began to minimize and minimize because I wasn't acting, interacting with the human race. And it was really honestly like more just like grunt caveman type, but give me that, get away from me. F you stop it. You know, it was just like, one sentence harsh statements. I, I couldn't interact. I couldn't feel who you are. I couldn't feel compassion. I couldn't access my heart anymore. I, I couldn't cry. I couldn't connect. It was just numb that state where you're not dead and you're not alive. I don't know what you are. You're just, you know, dead woman walking. And, you know, some of the things that happened to me in the street, I, I remember, you know, this guy, I, I got into this tricks car and he just pulls out a gun and every once in a while you get a real nutcase. I want to tell you, in the streets, in prostitution, I would say 95% of the men are just normal, regular men. Most of them have a wedding ring on and they just want something very fast and then they go home to their wife. They're normal people. 
they treat you well. They want to buy you a cheeseburger. They want to give you a, a, an extra tip. They want to get you a, they want to wash your hair. They want to buy you some soap. They want to do things. I mean, people really are good, but every once in a while you get the real Jeffrey Dahmer. You know, like maybe, maybe once or twice a year you get the real guy that wants to like burn body parts and cut things up and stuff like that. And you know, within like two or three minutes that you've really gotten into the wrong car. So he pulls this gun out and he says, take your clothes off and you're going to uh my uh. And I said, you know what? No. You know, and I just, I, I, I thought to myself, I'm not going to be some silence of the lamb victim. I mean, if this guy's really a lunatic, let's get this over with now. And I just looked right at him, and I am not kidding. I am wasted and out of my mind. And I said, not only am I not taking your clothes off, but I'm not going to pop up by your eh, eh, eh. I said, I want you to just look in my eyes real closely. And on the count of three, just put the barrel right there. And you look at me, and I'm going to look at you. And when I say three, pull the trigger, but don't mess. Just take me out right now. And he's like, lady, you're crazy. Get out of my car. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I crazy. Hold on, Turbo. <laughs> I'm crazy. You just picked up a prostitute and put a gun to her head, but I'm crazy. You know, and interestingly enough, like a year later, the very similar scenario happened. And I remembered the, the results of the first one, and it was a knife this time, and the guy just waved it like right at my neck. Take your clothes off, take your clothes off. And I just lifted my whole shirt up with all my bony chest, and I'm like, right here, come on, come on, just cut, start cutting my heart out, cut it out, cut it out, I want it to bleed all over you. And he's like, lady, lady, get out of my car. <laughs> so anyway, that's a really good tip for anybody that ever gets Jeffrey Dahmer. Okay? I mean, if we're going to roll, let's roll all the way, and let's get this over with now. Because I am not going to be a victim laying down, tied up in a rope, screaming for help with your little white poodle running around my feet. This is not going to happen. We're not going anywhere. We're going to do this now, right now. And honestly, had I died at that moment, I know I wouldn't have cared. Like I was that hardened to life. I was that street out. I was that disconnected. None of it mattered anymore. I hadn't seen my kid in two years. I was crazy, psychotic. I wasn't a homeowner. I wasn't a wife. I wasn't a mother. I wasn't a daughter. I was nothing. I was an alcoholic that lived in the street. That's what I was. I mean, your identity gets so skewed and so warped. I remember like when I'd see a parent walking down the street with children, the feeling that I would get, and even into sobriety and recovery was, I have no right to be anywhere near that child. Like, I remember that feeling so deeply in me, and it's because I threw my kid away. And I would look at those kids, and I would think, I'm so dirty, I have no right to even touch them, to even look at them. And I could not. My eyes couldn't look. I just had to look away. You know, and, and people wonder, like, what happens to these alcoholics? You know, they, they you know, selfish and self-centeredness in the extreme, but the disease is what's creating the selfish and self-centeredness. It's not narcissism. That's a completely different thing. It's not sociopathic. It's something else. It's self is running the show. And selfish and self-centeredness is the root of our problem. So let's get down to the root, drunk or sober. Selfish and self-centeredness is the root of my problem. So as things go from bad to worse, you know, I remember it was pouring rain in February in like 2003 and 
there was this burnt out old house that all the homeless people used to try to like seek refuge in. And, you know, some of the ceiling was like burnt out and water would just be pouring down. And then there were other rooms you could sort of step over stuff and it was kind of dry, but it just had that stink of completely charred house. And you'd walk in and it was dark, you know, it was raining and there's no light in there. And you'd sort of, hello, you know, and sometimes you'd hear like a, a faint noise or something. And I, I remember just like going way in the back, you know, and hearing this rustling and there was this chick laying down on a sleeping bag, this black chick from the streets, and she was pregnant, like, out to here. And she was sitting there drinking and smoking crack cocaine, and I'm like, man, I'm tripping. Like, this is a first, you know? Even in the street, this is a first. And I saw, like, in her eyes that look like, you know what? Don't you even ask me anything, because this is not a topic that's up for any discussion. I am here, and this is what I'm doing, you know? I could just feel like a real armor, like, don't even come here. So... We just sat there and we just got wasted for hours, you know, and every now and then she'd just grab my hand and put it on her stomach and I'd feel this baby just like jumping and contorting and I'd think like, oh my God, I gotta get out of here. I'm, I'm, I'm killing this woman's kid and yet the obsession is so much stronger than self-will that I can't leave. It overrides it. I don't know how to call an ambulance. I don't know how to call anybody and help this woman. I sit there and I basically kill somebody's baby all day and all night long. We just sat there and we just got wasted. And we talk and we laugh and, you know, I kind of spray perfume on it and pretend it wasn't there, you know. And somehow even the disease was able to help me roll through that. So I get it. I know the hurts and the harms that people have when they come in to Alcoholics Anonymous. We have done ridiculous things. You know, I'm sure that murder, rape, you know, selling your grandmother's jewelry, it's just all par for the course. We're lunatics in the disease. It's a very painful thing, and thank God we have AA. Thank God AA is here and has been here for 75 years because I don't know what would have happened to me. You know, they gave women like me back in the 20s and, and 30s, they gave me a lobotomy and a hysterectomy and some Thorazine and some lithium and a straitjacket, and maybe I just rock catatonically and some some big tower, you know, cement bricked in place in an asylum because they didn't know what to do with us. And now look at this room of people that are functioning, that drove their cars here, you know, that have relationships with their family, that are able to hang out with their fellow alcoholics and be a part of AA. What a miracle, Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I love AA so much. It's a beautiful thing. So I, I start getting picked up in the street, you know, that the new police chief, that police chief guy that came from New York to L.A., he said, I know what I want to do. I want to do something visual so that everybody knows what a great guy I am. I'm going to start sweeping the streets. And he would street, sweep, sweep up all the prostitutes, all the panhandlers. I mean, even the dirty, matted, buffalo-looking, paranoid schizophrenics, you know, that are like the most harmless. They are just like a buffalo, aren't they? I like to just leave them out there. They're like a great fixture wherever they roam. You know, there's just some, and they're so harmless. Like, people think, oh my God, they're probably going to open a trench coat and there's a dong hanging down. There's nothing hanging down. They don't even know how to hurt anyone. They're so disconnected, and most of them are so quiet and so shy. They don't want anything. They don't care to get 
cleaned up. And it's interesting because you go into jail and you watch one of those guys come into jail. It's very, very sad. The lights and the walls and everything, and they get they get forced into a shower, and it's it's sad. And then the inmates will pick on them because they're so completely disconnected. It's a, it was just like to me back in those days in 2003 when they started sweeping the street. Of course, for me because I'm up and out there running. It, it was an outrage. How dare they do this? How dare they chase us all down? But they continued to sweep the streets, and they sent all kinds of cops out undercover, you know, uh, uh, trying to hit, get all the prostitutes, you know, and get them for, you know, loitering with the intent to prostitute and prostitution soliciting an officer, drunk in public, possessing of paraphernalia, possessing of a controlled, controlled substance. And I was in and out of jail so many times in Twin Towers when the left tower was still the women's facility. Now it's in Linwood, and both towers are filled with men. We have such overcrowding in Los Angeles. But I spent a lot of time in Twin Towers. You know, one time I was in there, and when you get in a fight with another inmate, they don't care. Who started it? Oh, they don't roll like that. They just come in with SWAT, and they're like, ladies, stand back! And they just slam both of us down on the ground, and handcuffed we go to each other. We're handcuffed, by the way. And down in the hole for five days, and I swear to God, this is a true story. You lose all your civil rights when you go to jail. They can do whatever they want, and those deputies do not F around. I'm telling you, when they talk about police brutality in Twin Towers in L.A. County Jail, they're unbelievable. So they lock me down into solitary confinement, and they forget about me for 31 days I did in solitary. And I would bang on the door, and I would yell, it's me, it's me, how? I'm only supposed to do five days. And the guards would go, it's me, how? I'm only supposed to do five days, you know? Like, that's the kind of stuff, you know? It's me, how? I'm only supposed to do five days. I've been here ten days. It's me, how? I'm only supposed to do ten days, you know? And you have, like, no reading material, no TV, no anything. You get one shower every other day. And the, the food isn't even, like, general population. Like, in general population, at least you get, like, some jello and the meat and a little bit of salad and an apple. Like, they just pile a huge hunk of slop onto a tray and slide it through the slot. It's all mixed in together. They want to make sure that you don't ever come back again. It is so gross what they feed you. And I didn't even have a mat, like, down in my cell. All I had was one blanket, nothing to read. I took my bar of soap, and I scraped it and scraped it and scraped it with my fingernail, and I formed six little dice, and I played Yahtzee for 31 days over and over and over again. And my cell right behind me under the cinder block was this woman that had killed her, her seven-year-old and her husband and buried him under the floorboards, Angelina. And she was supposed to be out of there because you can't hold somebody in L.A. County Jail for more than a year. They need to be tried and gone to prison. She'd been in there for two years. And if I cocked my head the right way and put it up against the cinder blocks and we both yelled really loud, we could sort of have a conversation. And that's what I did for 30 days. Talk to Angelina across the hall, and she would tell me how she was writing a book, and I'd say, what was the book about? And this is hilarious. This is how long she'd been down there. She goes, well, it's about a woman who's an inmate in a prison, and two of the guards start falling in love with her and open the doors in the middle of the night and have sex with her and I'm like oh my god this is what would happen to your mind if you were stuck down here long enough it's interesting how the psyche will work it'll figure out a way to even make a fantasy down in a dungeon you know what a trip so that is isn't that that's amazing so you know I don't really see any any hope inside I don't plan on getting sober I think thoughts like 
Why don't I catch a drive-by? Why doesn't somebody shoot me? How come I don't die? Why do I always live? You know, those are the kind of thoughts that... But I don't ever think that there's any bridge back to safety, to Alcoholics Anonymous, to a program of recovery, to ever, like, speak at Yosemite or have a friend or a boyfriend or see my daughter again. Like, those thoughts are so far from my consciousness. So I meet this guy in the street, and he's a trick in the street. And it was a real interesting evening because this guy was from India, and I get in his car, and he wants to go to his house, and I'm like, I don't go to people's houses. Let's just get this over with in the car. And he goes, no, I really want to go to my house. And he lived right right on the main drag. This is really interesting. He lived at 666 Sepulveda, and that's the man that saved my life. I mean, what a unique address. He really did. That is such a He really, I swear to God, he really did live on 666. It's so strange. So I went to his house, and I said, can I take a shower? And I took a shower. And most of the time when you're turning tricks, you can't even get out of the shower. There's just some horny nutcase in the bathroom. Like, come on, come on, come on, come on, you know? And I walk out with a towel, and there's this kid sitting in the living room, like fully dressed. And I'm like... What is the matter with you? And I can just see his conservativeness. I can see something pure in him. I can see something childlike in him. And the first words come out of my mouth like, how many times have you ever done this? And he says, never. And I'm like, never? So I get out a condom and I just do the whatever out of this guy, you know, turn him into a pretzel. And what happens is he confuses lust with love and he decides that he's going to go on a mission like Captain Savaho and he's going to, and he's going to yank me from the streets and he's going to walk me up like Snow White and he's going to save me and put a gown on me and clean me all up and I don't know what, maybe he put an apron on me like Susie Homemaker, right? So I'm in the street and I mean like every couple of nights the the, the other girls in the street and the people are saying, eh, there's this guy from India and he's looking for you and I'm like, oh my God, you've got to be kidding. This guy's always looking for me. I only had sex with him that one time. One time, that was it. That's not what he wanted. I don't know. He was on that driven, he needed Al-Anon. He was on that, <laughs> he was on that, dri- that driven Al-Anon mission that driven Alan on mission to save me. So I would get in the car and he would just, you know, he'd say, how did this happen to you? And I'd have these, you know, sort of disconnected conversations about how life didn't treat me right. And my boyfriend, we always got in a fight and I had to work too hard and life was too hard. And I never told him that I triggered the physical allergy. You know, it was like, I blamed all this outside stuff, you know, and I, I'm, it's, I'm too old. I'm never going to get my kid back. And he always met me with this hope. And he'd say, He'd say, someday I'm going to tell you why I'm doing this, but I really want to do this for you. I want to, I want to, I want to get you a home. I want to get you recovery. I want to get you to have a meeting with your daughter. I want, I want to help you. I really mean it. I'm invested in this. And he started to pay for another series of rehabs. Four more rehabs. So four more before when I was in the relapse. Now, three years later, here we go, four more, and they're not working, and it's very, it's, people have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on getting me sober. You know, I see people that, like, want to help the homeless, and I'm like, pour lighter fluid on your hair and flick your bicks and go running down the street in the opposite direction. There's no way to help those people. You know, they got to want this thing. So, but I'm not hearing anything. I'm going in and out of rehabs, and every time I'm in there, the pain of what I've done is so severe because my maternal instinct's getting sparked again, and my desire to be with my baby is making me so sick, I'd rather blow my brains out. It's incredibly painful because I breastfed for three years, so the maternal instinct w- was alive, and it was developed, and it was formed in me. I had a real one, and I, and I had a real relationship with my daughter, a real loving relationship. We traveled all over the place. 
place. We worked in an orphanage in Kathmandu for two months when she was seven. I mean, we had tremendous experiences. We went to Club Med and we went to Hawaii and we did all the things that a mother and a child would do and it would just make me sick. I just couldn't bear that the pain was so unbelievable. And then rehab number four. Somebody handed me some tapes of this guy with 44 years in Alcoholics Anonymous. And the lady said to me, she said, listen to these tapes. You don't know how to listen. Alcoholics don't know how to listen. They have selective hearing. You need to become as willing to listen as the dying can be. You need to sit down and just listen to these tapes and just try to hear something. Watch your mind. See how your mind wanders away because you have a wandering mind disease. You have the attention span of a hummingbird. You don't know how to sit still. Watch your hands, watch your feet, watch your legs, you know, watch your emotions, watch your thoughts. Watch how your thoughts try to character assassinate the guy on the tape. Watch your mind try to find fault with what the guy's saying. Nobody had ever presented anything to me like that. And you know what? I don't know why, but I heard the instructions. And I took the tape home. And I think it was the way she delivered it, like she was strong, but she wasn't mean when she said, you don't know how to listen, you don't know how to be present, because no alcoholics do. I had it too, you know, when I first came in. And I listened to the to the tapes, and, and I heard the message of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I heard that there are two parts to the disease, and there are two parts to step one, and that there's a physical allergy and a mental obsession, and I'm powerless over alcohol, and my life is unmanageable. And the unmanageable life is not just out in the street. It's in this room right here, right now, if I'm captured by the disease. My disease will separate me from everybody in here. My disease will allow me to find fault or go into fear or hate myself or hate my fellows or find something wrong with somebody. And so when I started to really look at what the disease was, that you treat the physical allergy, and that's only the first half of step one. There's 11 and a half steps that don't talk about alcohol anymore. They talk about getting into a solution, rolling your sleeves up, doing something, you know, building a relationship with a power, getting down to causes and conditions, being accountable, looking at self, getting a sponsor, even getting commitments. I mean, all the things that Alcoholics Anonymous has to offer. So, so I start to hear I, I, I joined, my home group is called Primetime, and it's a Saturday night meeting on Beverly Glen and Ventura Boulevard in L.A. If you're ever, ever in L.A. on a Saturday night, is a most amazing meeting because we talk about the problem in the day we're in, and we talk about the solution. And it's not the drama du jour and all that stuff, and people don't get to throw up from the podium there. We'll stop them. You can't do that here. You can't chimp the meeting. You're not allowed to pee on the podium. you got to have some, some message here, and we don't do it out of un kindness, but it's like our meeting is there to raise the consciousness of the people in the room, because once you get one or two untreated shares from the podium, the whole, all the untreated people, now their hands all go, I had that happen to me too, my old lady stabbed me in the back also, and the next thing you know, the, the whole meeting's gone to hell in a handbasket, you can feel the disruption, people are walking out, and you've lost the audience, and there's no message, so I joined this home group, and, and it's called Primetime, where we really, really talk about the mind function of alcoholism. We use the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, the 12 and 12, the Harry Tebow papers, and the Sermon on the Mount by Emmett Fox. The Sermon on the Mount by Emmett Fox, not the Sermon on the Mount by Jesus Christ. Alcoholics Anonymous is not a religion, it's a spiritual program. 
Please don't name your God from our podium and no amens after somebody says something amazing. That's not how we roll here. It's either power or God of our own understanding. That's it in AA. You can have church and love what's happening now and a yarmulke and a rosary bead and a turban. You can do anything you want out there. But in here, we got this singleness of purpose going on. And if we can all agree on that, we got something really good happening in AA. Yeah. So... I go, I go to my home group and we, we sell the Harry Tebow papers and we look at what Harry Tebow said. And, and you know, he was a friend of Bill Wilson's. He was on the, the board of Alcoholics Anonymous in the 40s and 50s. He was a psychiatrist that worked with alcoholics. And, um, you know, he actually worked with Marty Mann, who's the first woman in AA who recovered. And my, I can never say her name without crying because she never gets any credit. I don't even know why people don't know her. But she was a hopeless alcoholic. She was in and out of his hospital all the time. He'd clean her up and lay her on a couch, and she'd have to talk about her past, and he'd think, maybe somebody sat you on the potty sideways. We're going to get to the root of it. And he never took into consideration the physical allergy. He couldn't see what Alcoholics Anonymous saw. And then he rolled into an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting and he, and he thought it was so amazing because he was, they were getting so many more results than he was as a psychiatrist that he, that he gave Marty Mann the big book and she said she threw it against the wall and she screamed and she yelled at him and she wasn't going to do it, you know, and in the end she was like, she started the uh, National Council for Alcoholism. They, uh, the archives say she spoke 200 days out of the year. I mean, this woman was doing something and they said everywhere she went there were women around her and she raised the consciousness of the women in Alcoholics Anonymous. Man, I wish I could see more of that today. I feel sometimes it's really sad what's happened for the women. I'm not putting down AA, but often there's not enough strength to help motivate and, and, and deliver a message of depth and weight to the other women, you know? It's, it's a painful thing and really part of my job once I do get a message is to transmit it and to really, really help somebody to find their way and maneuver their way through this thing and treat their disease and get a God consciousness and make amends and clean up their lives and carry this message to the next one and the next one and the next one. We have a real form to our program and carrying the message is an enormous part. Nothing is going to ensure your treatment of the disease so much as working with another. But if you don't know how to work with another, then you're just having coffee again. And believe me, I've been a victim of that too. I am not getting up here doing self-righteousness. I have fallen short in so many areas. I have self. I have the disease. I'm a hater. I'm a character assassinator. On my worst day, I grow horns and fangs and all of those things that we all do in here and talk smack and, and look at you cockeyed and all of those things. But, but I know that it's the disease and I know that, that, I've, that, that I've been triggered by the ego. So Harry Tebow talks about the ego factors, and he talks about these four factors, that what he found, the common denominator of alcoholics, that was not in the normal healthy person was that they were omnipotent, defiant, grandiose, and impatient. You know, and you see alcoholics, impatience, man. I mean, I just hurry up, let's go. Come on, honking their horn. Let's go, move. Come on, come on. You see both hands off the steering wheel like this, and I know who's behind me. Yeah, you know, it's an alcoholic. And then again, those noises in the bank line, those, oh, God. They say it so loudly. A healthy person with a healthy ego doesn't, oh, my God, look at that. That, that 
comes out of the alcoholic. That is not a normal, healthy ego. That is not a high-functioning person of society. <laughs> Rules aren't for me. Don't you know who I am? Hurry up and wait. I threw my kid away, and I sucked a bunch of dick in the street, and I drank a bunch of vodka, and I've been in jail, and don't you know it's my turn at this bank? I mean, it's just ins complete insanity. Complete insanity, the self-righteousness of the alcoholic. So, so the impatienceness, I gotta see it. And I gotta check my own track record. And if there's one that has all power, and that, and, and may I find that power now. Now means right now. It doesn't mean yesterday and it doesn't mean tomorrow. So for me, cause I'm so sick, all I really have is a moment by moment reprieve contingent on the maintenance of my spiritual condition. Some AAers can do a prayer on their knees in the morning and go out and go to work and maneuver through the day and do a little 10th step thing and check their track record where they went wrong and get up the next day and say, God help me be void of this. That's great. Some people come to AA, they get their wives and their children and everything back. Not me. It didn't happen like that for me. I had to struggle very hard for a new way of life. I needed a lot of help. I was a real low-bottom case. So my sponsor told me that I needed to watch my mind every moment of the day, not just take an inventory at the end of the night. And I need to see where I'm getting off. But if I don't know what the factors are that trigger untreated alcoholism, I'm not going to know where I'm getting off because I'm just going to think something like, this is the way I am. If you don't like me, then get out of here. There's somebody for everybody and you're not the one for me. And I'll justify, I will justify my untreated alcoholism all the way to death or to another drink or to a, to a, you know, a coffin. So impatience has to go. I got to learn how to wait like everybody else. And when I feel my heart panicking and I want to push the person in front of me, I got to ask the power into step two. I say, power, can you be with me? Because I'm feeling so alcoholic. I just want to choke somebody like a chicken. I'm, I'm so restless and irritable and discontent. My disease is flaring up and I just don't feel pretty at all. And because there is a power, I get relief. But in the beginning, I really had to talk to the power all day. Then we talk about the, the grandiosity. I mean, you guys know where I've been, and yet grandiosity, my opinions are better than yours, and I know more than you. And I have a conversation with you, and I start looking at your hair, maybe the roots, and your... <laughs> you know, your jewelry or that accent. Why don't you clean up that accent? Why don't you just speak proper English, you know? And you tell me about your ideas and the sick relationship you're in or whatever. And what I do is I pretend I'm Dr. Joyce Brothers and I completely assess you and I stamp and bonify and, and diagnose you and, and, you know, with everything that I have. And then I, and then my ego separates myself from you and I'm disconnected from the human race. I can't feel you. I'm a part of the human race. I gotta stay humble. This whole damn thing is about humility. It's about seeking and doing God's will in the moment that I'm in. And when my ego separates myself from others, if you really watch it, it doesn't feel good. Superiority is not a good feeling. It's a, it gets a charge. It's not a comfortable feeling. I would rather feel like, like the, the wallflower, like the, yeah, we're all in this together. You know, I can see your face and your smile and I love you just the way you are and I can hear what you say. That's a much better vibrational frequency for me. But I had to look at this for my own life. I had to get self honest for my own self. How self was running the show? What self looked like in operation? Because like I said before, self is never going to reveal self to self. So I got to get some human help. And it's not a 
in a psychiatrist's office, and it's not an appeal for me. It's in Alcoholics Anonymous with some good sponsorship and some people that have trudged the road ahead of me, have taken out some of the potholes and some of the boulders, and have paved a, a little bit of a way for me to show me what I'm up against. You know, and, and grandiosity, it comes out in so many other areas. But, you know, grandiosity, once again, it makes those noises like, oh, my God, can you believe her? God! <laughs> you know, like I have any right to do that about somebody. And yet I do. It just comes out. And it comes out, and I'm like, whoa, turbo, slow down. You just are up to your old tricks again. God, help me. Help me treat my disease because I don't want to get thirsty and wind up in the streets again because my life is important to me right now. And then we talk about omnipotence, and omnipotence means that I play God. And, you know, that's a tricky one because you got to really look at how I play God. Every time I take my will back, I feel that I play God because if we look in the steps, it says there in all the print, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as I will. Relieve me of the bondage of self. Selfish and self-centeredness that we think is the root of our problem. You know, my creator, I'm now willing that you should have all of me. Not my will, but thine be done. Every day is the day I must carry the vision of God's will for me into all my activities. And so I look at this, and it says all over the print, and I'm supposed to get as much self out of the Way so that the power can enter into me. That is what this thing is all about. Not all about, but a lot of it is about. It's also cleaning up self and looking at self and how self behaves in an inventory process and making amends. But for me, what I was given was a real hard foundation in the steps one, two, and three. And, you know, when people come in and, and, and they're agnostic and atheist, and sometimes that's such a blessing because for a lot of people, all the faulty foundation needed to be torn out and built anew on firm bedrock, you know, and it's like um, I had to get self-honest about what my preconceived ideas of God were. And I'll tell you, if you got a God like I had a God that's the police or policing you, get rid of that God. That is not my God today. My God does not find fault with me. My God has forgiven me over and over and over. My God is so happy that I'm home and that I'm free for the most part from the bondage of self. And all of that stuff that I did is not who I am today. And that's what the steps are really designed to do. But when I'm in omnipotence, I play God, I am God, rules aren't for me, I take back my will, I say things and I do things that are ridiculous and outlandish, you know, I cut people out of my life, and I don't allow my life to unfold in any kind of divine order. I don't let go and let God, I take it back and I do some ridiculous, impulsive thing, and then I have to bear the consequences of it. So it can be real, real painful if these things aren't pointed out to me. Let's see, grandiose defiance, omnipotence, and impatience. Grandiose. Oh, defiance. It's funny, I forgot that one. Ah, God, can you imagine me being defiant? Ah, God, it's still on today. Colin. You know, I, um, yeah. And, 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 you know, it, a lot of it, I do believe, is alcoholism makes us very hard and demonstrative and that whole, oh, yeah, really? Is that, is, oh, I see, you know, and getting in your face and and getting in the diamond lane with one person in my car and and 
and talking smack or muscling up or trying to cut somebody's head off to, to, to make myself feel better. And I have to look at how these things operate in my life. And I have to get self-honest that they don't make me feel good. They make the ego feel good. You don't want to feed the ego. For me, I want to feed the God consciousness. Like, like don't feed the bears around here. Don't feed my ego. Don't feed it anything because what goes up has to come down. Something that I really got to learn about the ego is that it can't remain fed. So once the ego is triggered, it needs more feeding and more feeding and more feeding. That's why you'll see like famous rock stars and, and, and actors and stuff like that fall apart because they'll get an ego feeding from something really glorious, but then it goes down after a couple of days or a couple of weeks. It doesn't last and they need another ego feeding. And they think that they're supposed to be living in that high exalted state because they don't really know anything about letting go absolutely of self and allowing God to be the manager for my life. And, you know, we get into so much pain that we don't have a choice. And that's what I'm really grateful for is that alcohol brings us to completely to our knees. You know, it's often very hard to sponsor somebody that has money and prestige. It's almost impossible because their, their connection of on who they are is still whispering in their ear. I was nobody when I, when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous. I had nothing left and I was so ripe and ready for a new way of life. You know, my sponsor told me that I get to build a new character with no reference to the old. That, and that, I was like, where do we sign up for this? Because I really, really, really have made such a mess of my life. I mean, I could see that I had destroyed it very early on in AA. I could see where, you know, I had just destroyed every single thing. And, and still will today, you know, as I build a relationship with God and I, and I plant a new seed or I get a new idea or a new relationship, self and alcoholism is right behind me whizzing on every little tree it knows exactly what me and god are doing and it stores it all in its little rolodex and then when it needs to use it like a ginzu knife to cut somebody up it just takes it all out boom 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 the whole room's assassinated i mean it happens so fast in the in the blink and the wink of an eye and that's why for me it is so important that i treat the disease in the moment that i'm in you know when I'm with self, I'm uncomfortable. And there are varying degrees of uncomfortability. I can be in low-level alcoholism where I just don't feel right and I'm not very joyful and I don't really know what's wrong with me. Or all the way up to, you know, turbocharged hating and I'm so upset and I'm so pissed off. It doesn't matter. It's all self. And there's no gray area. When, when I'm with the power, I'm not restless and I'm not irritable and I'm not discontent. You know... God's here to strengthen us. God's, God's really, really here to strengthen us. And, and I think I said it before, but I'll say it again on, you know, on 55. It says that actually we're fooling ourselves for deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. We finally saw that faith in some kind of God was a part of our makeup. Just as much as the feeling we have for a friend. Sometimes we had to search fearlessly, but he was there. He was as much a fact as we were. We found the great reality deep down within us. In the last analysis, it is only there that he may be found. So when I pray and I talk to the power, and I turn my will over to the power, I don't pray up to the stars. I pray 
deep inside of myself because inside of me is all the knowing. The, the kingdom of heaven is within. The God consciousness is within. The higher consciousness, the, 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 the higher plane of thinking is within me. It's not something that happens outside. When I have a psychic change, my glasses and everything I think and how I respond, it's been all rearranged inside. It's not out there. You know, I could be the same weight and the same height, the same bank account, the same talent. Everything outside is the same. But I shine at a much higher level. And I have real freedom from bondage of self. You know, when we go into step three and we become willing to turn our will and our lives over to this power, it has to be everything. And I know a lot of us, including me, it, it's hard for me to let go of everything. You know, it says that, that, that we need to let go absolutely or we need to practice these principles in all our affairs. If I can't practice the principles in all my affairs, I might have to limit some of my affairs. And so, you know, for me, I, I, I would love to say that I'm so free from the mom and the dad thing. I mean, I'm doing another fourth step again soon with a sponsor. I'm in the steps. I'm in step one again. And I, I don't love my mom and, and my dad like I should. I know there's still hate and harm inside of me. So I need to be very careful when I dial their phone number, when I meet with them, when I see their caller ID on my phone number, because that's the fastest trigger for me. And if I have to practice the principles in all my affairs, and I know from my track record, watching how my disease operates, that that particular affair, I have the hardest time practicing the principles, then I really am very, very cautious. I make sure that I'm connected to the power and that I'm okay in my breath and in my heart and that I'm ready to just hear whatever it is that's going to be on the phone and I don't need to have my way. I don't need to have them, you know, say anything kind to me or accept me. And it's still tricky. I'd love to say I'm free of it, you know, I would say at least half of it is gone. Uh, They don't trigger me so badly that cuss words come out and I go crazy and they have to hang up on me. Thank you, God. But it's still a painful place, you know, and and even if I can look at it a little bit differently, you know, my mom is a war survivor from Nazi-occupied Germany, and my mom has been through way more in her life than I ever have. But the disease will tell me. It's about me. I've been through way more than you. I know you starved and you were raped by soldiers. But I lived in the street and had guns put to my head. You know, I mean, I'll self-rationalize and justify not to look at her life and to just love her as a human being and to have compassion for her. You know, she she's a very strong mom. She's not a loving, warm, nurturing, hands-on kind of a mom. And she believes that love is, I, I cook for you, I bring you clothes, I always give a clean house. I don't know, but we don't say I love you from my country. And I'm like, the whole country doesn't tell their kids that they love them. And then she says, you know, you're always starting this kind of argument. I'm, I don't want to hear this. I Don't do this to me. And then off we go. That's it. You know, bing, 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 bing. And they're off. You know, yeah, and then it takes like three days to wipe that crap off of me. And then I've opened the closet to untreated alcoholism and all the bats and balls and Christmas lights and everything come tumbling down around me. And I'm not even drinking. I'm very far from a drink, but I'm in the middle of a think, and it's no good. It's really no good. And if I watch how the disease operates, really, I have no business thinking for myself you know, it's just the same as with the drink. I've lost, I've lost all, 
I've lost all control over it. My mind gets me into the worst, worst places. I'm a, I'm a hater and I'm dark and, and I'm mean and I don't just naturally think loving, kind thoughts without this power. But when I treat the disease and I'm, and I'm with the power, Something starts to happen and, and the mind starts to open and I start to feel at peace with my life and, and I start to not only like my fellows, I start to love my fellows. You know, it's like I, I go out into the desert with God in step two and step three and I just sit there naked in that desert until the desert starts to bloom. And it will if you do the steps as they're outlined and the desert starts to bloom and you know, I, I, I'm not here to seek anybody's approval on this planet anymore because approval seeking will take me out. Criticism will take me out. You criticize me or you tell me I'm too good. Either one of those, the ego will just grab a hold of that like a pit bull and chew like one of those soggy rawhides forever and ever and ever and ever. I have to be so careful with taking anything outside and planting it in me because really my life is offered to a power greater than myself. And as I connect to the power, I start to operate from intuition and enthusiasm and inspiration. And, you know, I swear to God, I'm really not kidding. I'm 50, 50 years old, almost 51. I have never, ever in my life been happier than I am these days. I laugh my ass off every day. Everything's funny. Everything is funny. And I, I'm not putting anybody down that's on meds. you got to take meds. Go ahead. I'm not on meds. I'm not on anything. I'm on God. I'm on God. And there's so much more to go for. We can hop out of the swimming pool of untreated alcoholism. We don't have to swim in that gurry and smear that stuff. All You know what she said? You know what he said? My God, if I could just lose this weight, I'd look like Barbie and all these problems that the, the mind wants to tell us. I'll never get a wife. I'm too old. You know, all this stuff. I don't have to believe anything anymore. God shows me that I'll be provided for as long as I clean house and stay with the power. And so far that has happened for me. You know, my daughter's 21 today and I can't say enough about her. She's the light of my life. My, my daughter is a global studies major at Azusa Pacific University and and right now in her last year, she takes the, the freshmen of global study learning, global term majors, and she takes them down into the streets of LA, that's part of her project, and they go to the homeless, and they go to jail, and I just, I can't believe, and I'm on the, the, I'm on the payroll to, to talk to these students. So I go in and my own daughter's sitting there with 25 students that she's brought in there and she says, and here's my mom, Astrid Howe. And then I get up and I tell them that I sold my ass in the street and didn't see my kid for three years. It is so unbelievable. Dudes! It is like, are you kidding me? And that's the kind of life that Alcoholics Anonymous has, has given me is that I've taken all my liabilities and I've turned them into assets. Assets? That's funny. Assets. <laughs> Never thought of that. I turned them into assets. And I see the look on my daughter's face. She's proud. She's proud because I'm not a prostitute and I'm not in the street and I'm not in jail. You know, I have a very good private practice today. I'm a physical therapist and a massage therapist and I work in a chiropractor's office and I freelance for myself and I have six years of sobriety. And uh, thank you. Thank you, AA. 
And uh, it's a little life. You know, I have a mattress on the floor. I have one car. I have one bank account, one checking account. You know, I don't have a boyfriend. I, you know, I don't care if you get into my personal life. The last sex I ever had was a trick in the street six and a half years ago. If there's a man out there for me, God will present him. If there isn't, I don't need to go on the Internet and look for some dating service to get myself all twisted up with another Jeffrey Dahmer and go off on another tangent somewhere. You know, I'll just stay right here. It was hard enough to get here. I really don't need finance and romance. Remember, we'll take you out of the game, and, and we've all seen it. So I live a, a humble life, a, a simple life. I'm of service. I, I, I have jail clearance. I, I go into L.A. County Jail. I go to talk to the, to the women and to the men, and that is such an amazing honor to go into that jail for the first time and, like, the elevator and just that 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 metal floor and the smell of the bologna sandwiches and the rubber mats and, and the blues and those slip-on shoes and the apple cart and the juice boxes and I'm just like I can't believe I'm back in here. It was amazing, you know, and, and I the first time I went and I talked at the women's jail, you know, nobody else showed up for the panel and the guard said, you got a really rowdy crowd. There's 65 women. I don't think you're going to be able to hold the room. And I'm like, Oh yeah. You know, <laughs> uh, you know, and I tell you, I have a very loud voice and you could have heard a pin drop and there's tissues flying. And I'm talking about throwing away my kid and everybody in the room can just relate and identify. And they're like, yeah, she'd be keeping it real. You know, all of that stuff. And what a gift because who would have ever thought that I could come in on the other side of that, you know, and be of service and talk to those people about a message of depth and weight. And I honestly, my daughter is my best friend. I don't know why she doesn't have a bunch of scratches and she's not all scathed from that. I think because the people that took her protected her so she didn't have to live with the psychotic untreated alcoholism for very long. She didn't have to be a witness to the prostitution and the vomiting and all of that stuff. Sometimes she'd know her mom was in jail and stuff like that, but she remained in the same school. She had the same friends. She had extended family. And I don't know. You know, she's not on meds. She's not in a psychiatrist's office. She's on the dean's list. She went to Kathmandu to Nepal and she worked for five months with the poor and street children, you know, in Mar March, April, May, June, and July. She's just a remarkable human being. And, you know, that's got to be God, because if I got what I deserve, she should be on the back of a Harley like this, never speaking to me again. You know, that is what I deserve, you know. I, that is what I deserve. And, and the other part of the deserve is that, is that, is that grace is a, is a free and an undeserved gift. And this power has done so much for me, and it has saved my life, and it has given me a new life. And it's such a blessing to be a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's such an amazing, powerful thing that we're a part of. And these are my people, and this is my home, and this is where I belong. I love the last house on the block more than any other home. I'm going to stay here with you guys. Thank you so much for letting me share. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.